Welcome to this week's Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, uh, this is the second in a, in a, in a mini-series here we're doing on the mining opportunities in Atlantic Canada. We talked to uh, uh, Matthew Alice about the opportunity of the manganese deposit uh, in, the, in the Woodstock area uh, here in New Brunswick. A very, very exciting opportunity. He tells us there's about 45 million tons of identified deposit preliminarily there. And this would be one of the largest deposits of manganese, not only in North America, but around the world. So really an interesting opportunity. Yeah, a big opportunity, obviously. And uh, for people who are listening to us, uh, you know, manganese is important for a lot of things that were used on an everyday point of view, not just electric vehicles, but it's, uh, it's used with uh, a lot of the telecommunication stuff that we use every day. And I think this is a message that, you know, that one of the reasons we want to do this mining series is, is to really alert people to the fact that we're going to need more mining to be able to reach the net zero uh, emission goals that the government has for 2050, because so much of the materials are, are, are going to be uh, needed for uh, electric vehicles, for windmills, for solar panels, you name it. Um, you know, uh, and, and one of our previous guests, uh, Sean Kirby, said we're going to need six times the amount that's currently mined for those products. So that, you know, put it in perspective, you know, uh, we need to take the opportunities where, like the, the one in Woodstock uh, as, as not only good for the environment, but good for the economy and good for the people of New Brunswick. 92% of manganese produced globally is produced in China. And he said another 90% of that production is actually kept in China for the production of value-added products in that country. So this is also about diversifying global supply chains and making sure that uh, North America has a stable supply of manganese uh, for use in the production of electric batteries and electric vehicles and a whole host of other equipment here uh, here in North America. So again, that's a big part of this. That's an, a big reason why the federal government recently announced its critical mineral strategy so that Canada can play a role uh, in diversifying some of that activity out of China and making sure there's alternative suppliers uh, of those uh, those critical minerals. Well, I, you know, I, I think we saw it during the pandemic that uh, we had to uh, repatriate uh, some things like uh, the production of medicines, as an example, and stop offshoring them, and, uh, you know, for security purposes. And, and actually, this is a security issue as well. You know, we need the critical minerals and, and, and we need to repatriate the supply chain and get it closer closer to uh, where we live. And, and I think that that's we're going to see that across a lot of different segments. So, or sectors over the next little while, you know, uh, uh, people are worried about China and with good reason. And so uh, we're going to have to find other supply sources and we might as well find them in our backyard wh where we can. And, um, you know, I think that this is one of those really interesting big opportunities. He, he mentioned that this is a potentially a 40 or 50 year generational mine. There's not many mines that last that long, first of all. So, you know, it's a big deposit and there's an opportunity to have it there for a really long time. And economically, you know, he, I think, what did he say? He said he thinks that in today's dollars, there's a, at least $10 billion worth of uh, 
manganese in, in the ground. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's more than that, but you know, that's a good start. <laughs> that's a good start. And he was talking again, it's early days, but he was talking about potentially 400 million in CapEx to just to get the mine site up to production and then potentially hundreds of jobs on site and in the supply chain uh, on an annual basis, good paying jobs, really a generational asset for, for Woodstock. And then this uh, additional plant or this additional processing opportunity, which I think uh, he's, they're not looking at doing it on site. So maybe in the St. John area, close to the port of St. John, again, another potentially high value manufacturing operation somewhere in New Brunswick. So a really great opportunity. Uh, without any further ado, uh, here's our conversation with Matthew Alice of the Can Canadian Manganese uh, Company. Today, we're pleased to have Matthew Alice on the Insights Podcast to talk about an important mining project in central New Brunswick and to help us understand how we can revive the mining sector across the maritime provinces. Welcome, Matthew. I, I want to start by uh, asking, before we talk about the manganese uh, project in New Brunswick, I want to talk a little bit about your career and background. Uh, maybe you can tell us, you know, where did you get your start in your career and uh, what was the career path that led you to uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Manganese uh, Company? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me on. You know, I think going, going back, how did I get here? You know, I I've grew up in the Maritimes, went to high school on Prince Edward Island, uh, went to school at Mount Allison University, uh, did an economics and physics degree and had no kind of aspirations to go into business and found my way after school um, in Calgary in the early 2000s um, in finance in oil and gas and uh, a place called First Energy. And looking back, I couldn't have asked for a, a kind of a better place to learn about about finance, about uh, you know about business, about the Canadian uh, public markets, all of it. Um, you know, gas went from a dollar to eleven dollars, and oil went from twenty to a, over a hundred. Um, and we were in the middle of it, so I got to see a lot of it, learn a lot of it, and be around very smart people in one room. You know, from there, I ended up in Toronto, staying in finance. Toronto is a much different place. Learned that pretty quickly in the finance world, and then um, you know we start. I've always been in the resource space and. Um, was part of a, a group of, of professionals that started a firm uh, called Griffin Partners, which we ended up selling to Standard Chartered Bank in 2011, which was a large, you know, London-based, but really Singapore-based. Um, and we were focused on resources. So I, you know, I spent my time with them kind of learning the global resource market. In, in 20, I think 17, 18, I left the, the Bay Street in finance um, and started looking at resource projects privately with some partners. And that led me to Canadian Manganese. You know, it was at the time a private entity that was under the radar. And I felt like it was something that I had been looking for and something I had seen in the past in another situation. Um, and we spent we spent time learning about it and getting there. And we um, ended up doing a transaction to take control and, and move it forward. Yeah, so tell us uh, tell us a little bit more about the company. Um, uh, kind of, uh, it's back when it got started. Perhaps uh, what what's the current size and and focus of the company? Uh, just give us an idea about uh, where, where the company yeah. is currently. Well, you know, the Canadian Manganese Company. The primary asset is a is a land package and a um, iron hosted manganese asset in Woodstock, New Brunswick, in the general area. And this area has been, you know, to give you some background, it's been mined since the 18, late 1800s for iron, was the original mining. Um, and since then, you know, every decade, there's been different 
people looking at it for different reasons. In the 50s, there was a lot of work done. 70s and 80s, there was work done to look at uh, manganese for for the steel, stainless steel sector. Um, in 2011, Canadian manganese itself was incorporated and took control of this. Um, and again, they looked for a few, they did a lot of work uh, leading up to a, a, P, a preliminary economic assessment in 2014 to look at it for the steel sector. You know, I think that at that point in time and various market dynamics, it didn't work for the steel. And then it, it was somewhat dormant for a number of years. Um, it sat inside another entity, a uh, public company uh, called Minco, and that, um, you know, it had a bunch of other assets they focused on, and it kind of just sat in the background until it was with uh, the parent company at the time delisted and sat as a private entity looking for kind of new management, new blood, new life into it. Sorry, I'm always curious about how you finance these long-term projects. <laughs> yeah. well, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, I think it really depends on, you know, what, what we're looking at and, you know, what long-term really means. You know, yeah, one of the things I didn't answer was you asked about size and, you know, where we are right now, it's, we have a large manganese resource uh, over 50 million or 45 million tons was our last uh, resource report, um, you know, and growing. Um, and I would say what we have is that's Plymouth. We have one pit Plymouth. Historically, if you look back to the work that was done in the 50s and 60s, you know, they, uh, they identified an area called Hartford, which is a few kilometers to the, to the northwest, um, as almost twice the size of Plymouth. Um, we've tested it and, you know, I think we'll, we, we, we feel the same. We feel the same. The same geology exists there. Now, whether it's twice the size, we'll see. And then we have a lot more of, um, you know, kind of geological anomalies that are similar to what we see at Plymouth and Hartford to the southeast towards we hit the main border. So what we feel, we have a district. So when it comes to size, we have, I think we have a district of manganese. Um, and I'll go to your question about financing these big things. You know, I think it's um, it, it's always it, it's always the key question on, you know, what whether it's what commodity we're talking about, how big it is, what kind of capital investment, um, what does the market look like? You know, we're not gold. We don't have a, a perpetual marketplace that we can just sell product into. So this is, you know, for lack of a better term, this is a real business where we have to go out and find customers, create a product that people want um, and, and enter a marketplace. Now, I think that we're in the right time and place for that, uh, given what's going on in the world. Can you just tell us who actually owns the land up there? Is it? It's not crown land. It's, is it owned by farmers, or do you actually own the land? We own. Uh, we own a large portion of the main pit at Plymouth, um, uh, and there there are there uh, to the south part of Plymouth is a is a farm a family that owns a farm. Hartford area is a farming family, uh, but yeah, it's mostly it's not crown land. It's mostly privately owned. So, can you just tell our listeners what manganese is used for? What are the uses uh, of uh, manganese? Yeah, well, I think the, the the most common use of manganese is the stainless steel sector, uh, creating a product that goes into stainless steel, and it's around the world. And recently, and as we have the evolution of energy storage and batteries have come about, you know, manganese has become you know a, a big part of uh, what I would say is the adopted uh, cathode technology in electric vehicles. So we are talking about lithium. You know, everybody hears about lithium and cobalt. Uh, one of the big adopters of this are all the big auto manufacturers of NMC, which are nickel manganese cobalt batteries, cathodes. So, you know, manganese is playing a bigger and bigger role in that energy storage. And I think, you know, our view, it's going to continue to do so because of its cost, 
um, because of, you know, hopefully projects like ours that are in politically stable and uh, environmentally conscious jurisdictions uh, get moved forward. Um, and we clean up the kind of supply chain that goes into these, you know, we're going to decarbonize the world by driving electric cars. We might as well focus on the supply chain too. Absolutely. So you, you talked about 45 million tons or, or more. Can you give us a sense of comparatively how big that is? Is that one of the bigger deposits in North America? And uh, a second question is, are there other provinces and states competing for investment in manganese mining? So uh, big, you know, I think that the, the manganese comes, you know, I guess two, we'll break it down to in a kind of high level, two very distinct geological uh, forms. You know, there's an oxide material and a carbonate material, you know, getting, getting this manganese. And, and historically, the oxide material was used in the steel sector because of its chemical properties and the way it was processed. It was, it took as much, half as much heat to reduce it down to where you need to be to process it. So half as much energy, half as much cost. Carbonates, fast forward to where we are today, to get to where we are today, you know, there is solution-based processes that take carbonate and can make it more carbon efficient to create a high purity manganese for batteries. So we have, you know, one of the largest carbonate resources and districts globally, uh, you know, not just North America, globally. And, you know, there's a, there's very few others in, uh, in the public markets, for sure, um, looking at carbonate, a much smaller and lo- lower grade deposits. There, there's not a lot in North America. There's some byproduct of manganese in, in other other deposits uh, in Arizona, uh, but again, it's one, it's lower grade material where we we feel we have you know a large large homogeneous uh, high you know relative high grade carbonate deposit. Uh, if all goes to plan, uh, when do you expect to green light the project uh, that you're working on right now? Well, I think, you know, we, we look at a few different phases of, of green light. Um, you know, we are at, currently we're updating in the next few weeks. We anticipate having an updated resource. We did a lot of drilling last year, did about 7,000 meters of drilling at Plymouth. Um, so we'll provide an updated resource there and moving a lot of that resource material into a, a measured and indicated category, which provides more confidence and we can use towards a feasibility study. We started last year an extensive environmental baseline study program with a group very experienced in the area to make sure that, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to get prepared to submit an environmental impact application. You know, our intention is to, to do that in 2023, those applications, the timeline on going through that process. But I think, you know, one of our, uh, our main focuses here is, you know, I, I grew up in the Maritimes, and I've seen mining happen around all the world, or all around the world. We are trying to be as transparent as possible with everybody when it comes to municipal, provincial, government entities, ministers, the local community. Kind of the motto is no surprises. So we've gone out of our way to make sure everyone's involved in that process. And you know, I don't know if it, I think we we announced it, but we we brought on and had been working with myself and our team for over a year, but brought on officially. Uh, former premier in New Brunswick, David Alward. He has a farm in the region. He's a fisherman on, on on the local river. You know, he knows the community well and to help us understand more than anything, the questions and concerns of everybody there as we move this forward. Um, so, you know, 2023, we'll see updated resource. We'll see um, the work at the mine site, some feasibility level work on developing a plan for the extraction of the ore. You know, going back to the 2014 PEA, there was an outline for a big hydrometallurgical facility right there. 
which I think at the time scared a lot of people, you know, farm, farming community, uh, agricultural community, um, very important river runs not so far away um, into the St. John River, you know, putting a big chemistry set beside all that doesn't, you know, isn't what people want. So, you know, I think we're looking um, specifically at extraction and then looking at processing that high high value processing at another location uh, that wouldn't be in the Woodstock area. But, you know, th- those things will go through in 2023. The way I look at it is we're trying to uh, build something for the market that doesn't exist yet in North America. You know, the battery market, although we want, we hear about it every day and we want it to exist, it doesn't, right? It, it's dominated in Asia. Uh, the production of these materials is dominated in Asia. The, um, the production of batteries and battery uh, elements are, are dominated in Asia. And I think, you know, what, for North America to catch up is going to take time. Uh, there's a lot of announcements, a lot of capital set, saying it's going to be um, implemented and facil- facilitate all this manufacturing capacity. But, you know, I think as we le- go to the latter half of this decade is when I think we're really going to start seeing that come into fruition. And that's what we're targeting to be, you know, when we're our mind. So 2027, 20, 26, 27, 28 timeline. So, so where do you what, plan on, sorry, Don, but where do you plan on putting yeah. that value added processing or that processing plant? Because that's a lot of good paying jobs, a lot of good economic activity. Where do yeah. You and, you know, I think that's one of the things that we are, we're looking actively at. And I, you know, I, I'm looking at New Brunswick, right? I'm looking at what's available and you look around New Brunswick and I think there's some pretty logical places this should go. You know, at the same time, it's, you know, it's an economic equation. The, the processing is a function of power. It's a function of access to consumables. It's a uh, function of, of your distribution capabilities to the market you want to get to. Now, you know, where we sit, and I've said this on my little soapbox many times, you know, where we sit on the St. Lawrence, close to this proximity to the St. Lawrence, proximity to rail to the Northeast, proximity to the Atlantic Ocean, you know, the manufacturing, historical manufacturing capacity that's here, the nickel that exists in Labrador, the cobalt that comes out of Labrador. We have all the elements in Eastern Canada to be a dominant player in the development of battery technology. And we have everything. It's going to take some efforts, you know, not only by the companies doing it, but the, you know, the policymakers and the constituents to really push forward to, to develop something here that's special, that's, you know, is going to, to drive the next hundred years of energy. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I just before I turn it over to Don, I'm a little nervous about that. Of course, they've already announced two billion dollar EV battery plants in Ontario, and I don't think the Ontarians are going to allow any of that sort of processing down here. I don't know, Don, if you're as cynical as I am, but at least if we could get the mining and the processing of those minerals uh, here and then shipped into Ontario, I think that would be a win. But I would love it if you're right, and we could actually produce uh, electric uh, uh, batteries here. That would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting enough, we had a podcast not that long ago, Matthew, with Denis Caron, who's the CEO of the Port of Baldoon. Uh, have you heard what they're trying to do? Uh, I have, yeah. I'm familiar with what they're doing out there. So, you know, they have uh, they have space and, they're, and they, they're going to have green, eventually green energy through small modular reactors. Don't know if the timing would work out, but that, you know, that and, the, and they're on a port. Yeah. <laughs> they're on a port. <laughs> Seems yeah. to... Like, off a lot of- it takes it takes a lot of you know these these types of industries as we, we do it you know I think human nature makes us look at kind of the short term year you know and especially public companies are looking quarter to quarter yeah uh, but you know like I said at the beginning you know mines take 
you know, it, it, traditionally they say it takes 10 years from finding it to getting it into production. You know, we're, this thing is now 30 or 40 years in the making. We're, we're in an environment where we can take advantage of a need for the next 50 years and provide something like manganese isn't this, this type of manganese and manganese in general isn't produced in North America. So mm-hmm. to give you a sense in the, the high purity manganese that goes into batteries, over 92% of the world's production comes from China, right? And 90% of that doesn't leave China. It stays there. So, you know, when you think about what we've just gone through in COVID with supply chains mm-hmm. and you've gone you know, the political and, you know, um, issues that have gone back and forth. You know, if you want to believe that uh, North America is going to be reliant on on key materials and key components for massive industries, massive corporate champions like the Fords and the GMs of the world for North American supply, um, you know, then that's that's your belief. But I believe that North America isn't going to and the governments and the leaders and industry leaders aren't going to sit around and hope that that just stays stays status quo. Well, in fact, the political environment has never been better for you. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, effort to try to take uh, move supply chains away from China. Um, so, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the government's efforts to help uh, rare and critical mineral uh, exploration in this country. So the timing is spectacular for you because usually you have political opposition to it. Now, does, now you look like you have political support. Yeah, I want. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you anticipate the economic impact of the project would be. Uh, you know, first of all, to get it up and running, and then over time, what do you what do you expect the uh, the economic impact will be of that project? Well, it's you know, it's it's again, it's hard to say on not knowing you know how big we want to build something, but I you know I can give you a sense of the value of metal that's in the ground. You know, if you if you assume, you know, it's just simple what's in the ground and the value when you pull it out and extract it at a, at a reasonable recovery rate. There's there's over 10 billion dollars of value of metal in that ground um, mm. uh, in Plymouth alone. That's just Plymouth. Right. Right. So, you know, w- taking that out. And like I said before, this isn't gold. You can't just flood the market and there's just a constant stream of it. But. You know that that shows you there's this is very valuable rock we're sitting on right now. Um, you know the the question about processing how it's done. You know I think we will demonstrate that we have a good handle on that, but that'll be part of the economic equation as we move forward. Um, but it, it is what I what I you know tell people this is a generational asset. Um, this isn't something we're going to put in production for 10, 12, 15 years. This is this is a forty and fifty year, if not much longer asset that can sustain, you know, that this can be the champion for this industry f- for the next 50 years. And nor- when I say industry in North America, the Western world supply of manganese for this, we can be the, we can be the leader. Really? Wow. So just again, uh, like, let's say in terms of jobs that might be created, I, I know it's early days, but you know, what, what would you, estimate that you know the employment opportunities might be then these would be well-paying jobs i assume as well yeah i you know i think you've got two two very distinct call it businesses right you've got an extraction yeah. business um yeah and, you know if you look around at you know, what's gone on and some of the economic estimates from competitors or other groups that have built facilities similar of similar size you, you look at a cost of you know over three or four hundred million dollars u.s 
coming in as an injection into the, to the area to build something. So that goes, you know, we're talking about fuel and, and jobs coming in to build, um, uh, build the project. And then to the ongoing uh, maintenance, you know, it, it, looking at similar size projects, you know, I, I don't want to throw a number, but hundreds of jobs are created. Um, and like I said, generational, this is a long-term thing. And I think one of the, one of the, the added benefits to what we're doing, you know, it's not just a mine, we're not just pulling, you know, uh, you know, oil, it's not oil sands. It's, we're, we're building something that's, that's fueling a technological revolution. And I think that there's some benefit there to people and the, you know, the next generation that grows up in a community that understands that what's being pulled out of the ground there goes into something, has an understanding of, of the technology changes and the importance that it plays because, you know, I think mining has, and for, for good reason, has a bad name a lot of the times, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, we're, we're sitting here looking at each other in different places on computers. It wouldn't exist without mining. Everything we're doing wouldn't exist without what we pull out of the ground and create. So, you know, it's, it's easy to say, well, just won't mine. I think we just need to figure out how to mine more efficiently. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do in, in the community. So I think, you know, jobs are one thing. I think education, the, you know, the indirect kind of benefits come from that. 45 million tons, that's a lot of weight. Can you give our listeners a sense of how this product is shipped to market? Is it by rail? Is it by road, port? How do you, how do you envision this product? I, I assume it has to go to the processing facility and then, and then to the end market. So what's the sort of transportation uh, uh, play there? So yeah, I think that's one things we're we're kind of deeply evaluating right now, and and looking at what what leaves the mine site. Um, you know, it's we're all forty five million tons won't leave, and I think that we're looking at uh, obviously the, the number one thing is kind of environmentally friendly ways to concentrate the the rock into a higher grade manganese. Um, so you pull it out of the ground and you have waste rock. You know, I think one of the good things that's uh, you know is has been you know with some work and we're still evaluating, but, you know, as we get deeper to assess it, but I think one of the good things um, is that there's not acid, gen- a lot of acid generating rock here. So, you know, crushing the rock doesn't create the type of uh, acid generation that happens in some other type of mines, which would, you know, would require the types of tailings facilities to hold that in. So, you know, we, we anticipate doing some type of dry stack tailing, you know, there's not a lot of impurities in our ore, so I think, you know, we, we would look to remove some of the iron in it and, and move, move it. Now, again, size of operation makes all the difference, right? If we're moving a thousand tons a day, um, you know, trucks probably make the most sense. But if all of a sudden, you know, there's a demand and we're going into multiple industries, multiple kind of consumers, and we're doing 5,000 tons a day, well, you know, rail could make, long-term rail could make a lot of sense for one of the local or national rail carriers. But getting to a port at the end of the day, getting to a distribution node like a rail or by, by water makes the most sense to move this, this type of material to the, the end user, which is the cathode manufacturer. So that's interesting about the tailings pond. Of course, across Canada, there's lots of tailings ponds. They've been controlled well. Uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of uh, danger there, although there was that big one in, in British Columbia, right? The tailings yeah. pond that spilled over... Uh, and created some concern. So you're saying there wouldn't even be potentially a tailings pond here. It would be some well, sort of well. Dry... We wouldn't be adding any. We wouldn't be adding any chemicals. And a lot of these tail, you know, I think there's lost the, the flow sheets of a lot of these mining operations. You have, you know, you're you're doing a lot of processing on site. So you're reducing that, and you're adding chemicals, and there's and that that's what comes out of this, right? We're not going. You know, our intention is not to have any of that at site. 
So that would be the high purity processing, the, you know, using the various solutions would be done offsite. So really it's, it, you know, this is as simple as, you know, it's almost a quarry, you analogous to a quarry and pulling it out. Right. Um, so we know there's, there's uh, mineral royalties here in the province. Do you have some indication, just broad based indication for the listeners, what kind of royalty revenue this type of project could, in, could be for the government of New Brunswick? Yeah, you know, I listen. I don't know what the royalty regimes and how they how they move, uh, you know, over time with the jurisdiction. So we'll see how that goes. But I will say, like I said, like you know, we have we have you know over uh, and and today's prices over ten billion dollars of value of rock under there. Now, you know, royalties are usually done on top line. So you know, figure out what we're going to produce annually and and go. But I think you know, it's it's a significant number a significant number in compared to what else is coming to the province in those types of royalty revenues. Yeah. Probably tens of millions a year. I just as doing some numbers in my head, but that's great. All right. I'll turn it over to Don for, for another question. Uh, we, we had a really interesting conversation recently with Sean um, Kirby, who's the executive director of the mining association of Nova Scotia. He told us some things that, that I didn't realize. And one of the things he said is that, and I think this is important to repeat, frankly, to the listeners, so they may not know this, uh, that uh, once you finish with a mine site, you have to have a plan to reclaim that land and put it back into its pre-existing sort of situation. And not only that, but you have to have a fund established to do that work so that if the business disappears, the money is still there to do the work. I just want, I'd like you to comment on that because I, I, you know, one of the criticisms I think that mines have is that, you know, they leave a gaping hole in the ground and, uh, and, you know, that's one of the negatives about mining, but, you know, there's actually a pretty strong legislative, I guess, process in place to ensure that that doesn't happen. That's true. I think that, you know, not all reclamation efforts are, are equal. So, like I said, you know, like if you're talking about a project in the mountains in BC where you're using acid and everything else to leach copper, reclaiming that land to turn it back to its natural state is is a more costly and time consuming exercise than taking what we're got where, you know, I envision this as being we're an open pit, um, open pit mine this. And then as you get through the mine, you know, the mine plan to a certain point when you get to wherever you think the number is, if it's 30 percent left, then that they start moving and backfilling that ore back into the pit. So as you start pulling out, you're refilling and you effectively backfill it back in. Now, all that will come out as we do our, our feasibility work on the mine site itself. And you're right, there will be you know contingencies and various funds put aside for that type of, of reclamation. But you know, I think my chairman puts it best, you know, that um, mining does have an impact, but not all impacts are bad. And, um, you know, we're looking at kind of that net, that net positive that this provides other than just looking at a big hole in the ground, which, you know, I understand people, it's the mentality, it's not in my backyard. Right, right, exactly. I, I just want to move on to another topic. Uh, I want to find out uh, what is the process to move the mining project forward uh, and uh, where are you in that process? Well, I'm assuming you've got a pretty, you know, active engagement strategy in place to you know, uh, talk to the communities and First Nations and, 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 you know, dealing with environmental reviews. But where, you know, where are you in that, uh, in that process right now? Well, I, I think the process is fairly, um, you know, it's fairly regulated on how, how you go about it. The environmental impact, uh, the assessment and the application is one of the big kind of hurdles 
to getting a mine with the green light to, to mine, you know, engage, like I said at the beginning, right, engagement with all these groups and no surprises. So we've been we've been with First Nations. There's 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 an engagement protocol and how you go about, you know, making sure that everyone's informed together. And I think you, as we do any any work on the ground or anything we need approvals for, they're very well informed. You know, we do our best for the local uh, First Nations group to make sure that they, you know, they know what we're doing in the area. Um, the community, for sure, you know, we spend, myself and, and David Allward spend time, and especially David, making sure the local community, farmers, homeowners near to what we're doing. We've gone around and sat in living rooms and talked and answered questions and made sure people know who we are and what we're doing. And we, we do all the things like test water and do all that. So I think those those engagement activities are ongoing. The process is, you know, we're, we're working on our feasibility study, which we'll outline in detail you know, what we want to do with that will be added to our application, our EIA, and that'll go in and that will apply for all our, you know, our, all our permits to, to mine. So I just want to ask you uh, if, uh, it, what, what has been the community's reaction to date, Matthew? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know everybody, <laughs> but I, I think, um, yet <laughs> I think everybody, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, and it's a community of, you know, historical farming that I think has kind of dwindled away. Um, you know, the, the next generation didn't want to farm or moved off and did other things. Um, and, you know, even like right where we are on Plymouth Road, I met a, a family, a husband and wife who were, you know, they've been there the whole life. They're farmers. They're directly across the street. And their comment would said, this is great, right? This is great that something something is going to kind of rejuvenate or, uh, you know, inject some some life into the community through another industry, right? And there's business leaders in the area, you know, Woodstock, you know, you think, I, I know I went to Mount Allison, so I know a lot of people from up in the area, but like most of Canada doesn't know where Woodstock is. Um, and you said, you know, the New Brunswick border along Maine, people have no clue, but, you know, there's a lot of fantastic businesses that have started out of there and business leaders and thought leaders in the Maritimes coming out of that region. I think, you know, we've I've talked to some of them and they're all very supportive. Of, of what we're trying to do and trying to, you know, help generate economic activity and bring more to the region. So, you know, I, I'm sure there are people that are vehemently against mining in general. I've met some people that just have their immediate reaction is not in my backyard. But again, I think that we, we try to do our best to be as transparent as possible, answer questions. And, you know, as we evolve and as we have more information to share with people, we will be more visible in the community and engagement and and make sure you know this nothing's going to happen without without people having an opportunity to say what they need to say uh, i think one of the things also that's changed of course is that uh you know it's it's becoming clearer that we need more mining if we're going to get to net zero by 2050 that's a that's a big uh, issue uh, for people and that actually should give you much better support in the community in general, but that message is not out there yet. I don't think many, that's one of the reasons we're doing this series that people don't realize that uh, we need a lot more of the critical materials to be able to get to net zero. And uh, you know, we have to have more mines. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right. So Canada and New Brunswick can do its part uh, to help North America and the rest of the world meet net zero. I think that is part of the message here. I just wanted one quick follow-up on that because I've always thought one of the problems is you can't have sort of political leadership on this coming out of Fredericton or even coming out of Ottawa. Are you getting good support from uh, from Woodstock and from uh, municipal government? Are they? Do you think they'll be 
uh, helpful and it actually helped champion this project at the local level in the community? Yeah, I, I you know, every, 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 you know, both provincially um, and municipal, municipality have been fantastic um, as far as, you know, being engaging, um, asking the right questions, supportive of what we're doing. You know, it, right now, we all we're doing is trying to figure out what, what it is we're going to do. So, um, you know, I think that if we can deliver, continue to deliver on what we say we're going to do um, and keep the, the information to people going properly, I think that, you know, we'll continue that support. Uh, and, and, and I think part of that is, you know, I say internally, you know, more, more questions are better than less. So more people involved, more people hearing the story um, and providing us more, uh, you know, more thought, different points of view gets us to a better answer. And that's all we're trying to get to is the best answer. And, you know, if the best answer isn't good enough, then so be it. That's, that's, that's life. But I think that we've got something extremely special. And I think, you know, I'm happy to tell anybody about it and talk to them all day about it because I think they'll, they'll quickly realize, you know, this is, this isn't something that just, you know, you can do somewhere else. Uh, Matthew, the federal government, as you know, recently announced a new critical minerals uh, strategy, of which manganese is uh, identified as one of those uh, minerals. And uh, they put a lot of money um, into this fund to support the uh, strategy to, uh, to provide tax credits and, and help to accelerate mining projects. What do you think, uh, what do you think of this new strategy? In theory, it's, it's fantastic, right? Um, it's you know, it, it, I guess it's an, it's an evolution to what has existed already in, you know, the, the exploration and development space from tax credits to, to um, um, kind of entice investment from, you know, the, the retail or the high net worth crowd, Canada. And so, you know, I, I think on, on the face of it, it's a good thing. You know, the, the problem is that in, in any, any one of these systems where there's free money, there's abusers in that system. And uh, understanding how those abusers get access to it and, and take it away from those that will do what we just talked about, right? Developing new minds, developing what we want to do. That's my fear in how this money gets doled out um, and it doesn't get, uh, you know, doesn't get uh, allocated efficiently. Um, but, you know, I think that it's, it sends a signal that at least it's part of the conversation. At least Ottawa care. Ottawa is hearing that, you know, the country cares about this. So Ottawa is doing what, you know, they feel they can at the moment. I think that, you know, it's going to take people um, in our my, my chair and, you know, the big company chairs, the multi-billion dollar companies to be able to help move this and get the right assets at the right time, this capital. Um, and hopefully it doesn't go somewhere where it shouldn't and be, you know, not not beneficial for years or decades. Well, I, I can only hope that you're having conversations with Dominic LeBlanc and getting your name on the list early. Uh, <laughs> I understand that the tax credit is is at thirty percent of the cost of exploration. It's a, it's a pretty good tax credit. Yeah. And uh, and and I guess it, it, it depends on timelines and stuff like that. But uh, it would probably help your project, though, right? No, no, definitely. It would de it would definitely help. And I think you know, I think support at any government level always helps, and visibility helps. So. You know, I, I think we're we're on. You know, we're 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 definitely paying attention. We're focused on making sure that when we have something to say, it's meaningful and it's not misleading. Um, you know, and I think that's that's kind of where where we are. And uh, unfortunately, 
you know, we, we live in Canada. And if you look back in history at the Canadian resource markets, especially the public companies, misleading was kind of status quo for a long time. Right. So uh, what you're saying to us is that you're not quite ready to go ask for their help. But uh, when well, you're ready, yeah. you're going to go. <laughs> So I just wanted to ask you, in 2015, when I worked for government, I was chief economist and in charge of economic development strategy. We actually got a presentation from, I guess it was the previous owner uh, on that project. And as you said, it's been kind of percolating away off and on for quite a long time. And I think there might be some that are just saying you're, you're just another tire kicker. So I guess the question for you would be, are there what are the real roadblocks here or challenges to move this forward? Are, are they markets? In other words, you talked earlier about how you have to actually have to find customers for the product and everything. Is that where the real challenge lies or is it at the mine site? Like where, what would you say the one or two big challenges are to get this thing moved forward so that you're actually breaking ground in 2026, 2027? Yeah, I don't think that like the end users, I think, you know, that's identified and that's growing. So I, I we, we're not too concerned on that side. I think, you know, it, it, it really is getting a mine approved right? Um, in, in anything. It's just making sure that you do the right things and, and it, you don't get stuck. Now, you know, and, and whether it's, you know, it's political or whether there's jurisdictional issues um, that come about that have nothing to do with the mind, but you get caught in the middle of it. Those, those types of things can delay. So, you know, I think that just, just making sure that we are, you know, on track, we get to the position where we can we can put a hole, a hole in the ground and, and start move, moving more around. I think access to the capital required, you know, it's out there. It's focused on it. You know, we, you know, we, we can see it. And it's just you know, really uh, making sure that we don't do anything that, uh, that kind of hinders our, our, uh, our movement on the ground. This might not be a fair question, but are you, do you develop it and then pass it off to one of the big mining companies or do you plan on you know owning it and operating it for the four well years? listen i'd love to I'd, I'd love to be a part of this for the rest of my life like i think this is a, a fantastic asset um you know i think a lot of the you see precious metals companies and you know i grew up in the oil and gas world with the income trust so i watched the juniors sell the income trusts over and over and over again i don't think this is that type of asset now that being said do i think this fits with a if some group wanted to build out a multi-pronged battery metals uh, a business does it fit well? I think definitely you want a you know a global leader in something for sure. But you know I, I don't think I'm our our team is going to be going anywhere anytime soon. You know we're building this on our on our you know our names. We're in we're in the community. We're doing this. This is this is a small place. This Maritime is a small place, right? My shareholders. I'd say fifty percent of our shareholder base is maritime business leaders, different people, right? Our board is probably half maritime based. So, you know, we are committed to building something there. And so, you know, I don't think handing it off to the big behemoth, you know, T plus one makes any sense. Um, so the last question for you here, Matthew, is is probably just a, <laughs> it's, a it's an interesting question. We, I wanted to ask you how optimistic are you that the project uh, will go ahead. Listen, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Um, you know, I think that you know, I think that regardless of of kind of whatever we'll call it the the noise or the issues of the day, we're we're moving, we're hurtling toward a different world, 
you know, than we were when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, right? This world is completely different. You know, like electric cars in the 80s was as equivalent to flying cars. So, you know, where we are is is totally different. I think that we can get past any issues of this quarter or this year. And as we look at something for the next generation or two generations, right? I, I say internally, and I've, I've said this in, in Fredericton a few times, you know, Alberta owned energy in Canada for the last 100 years. You know, there's no reason Atlanta Canada can't own energy for Canada in the next 100 years because energy is different, right? Decentralization of power, energy storage is one of the biggest industries in the next 100 years for us in North America, all over the world. And we think we can play a big part in that. So optimistic, yeah, I, I think I, I'm very optimistic, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not ignorant enough to think that there won't be hiccups along the way. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast and telling us all about this important project. It's, again, it's not every day that a project of this magnitude comes along. It could really be a generational asset, as you said, for the economy in central New Brunswick and help bolster the greater sort of Woodstock economy for, for a generation or more. So thank you so much. We wish you all the best as you develop this important project in the months and years ahead. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matthew. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.